0: Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And as I said this morning, we're going to work our way through this book, and I'm going to be in no hurry whatsoever. Very happy that you are here, and we pray that over time, more of our congregation will come and share in the importance of this book. And I hope that you are determined to be here as we expound this book. If, for example, we're just in the 8th chapter after a year or year and a half's time. Because we're going to move very slowly through the book of Romans. The hymn we just sang is such a fine, fine summary of the themes found in the book of Romans. Well, let's briefly pray before we read some of God's word and then introduce the book. Our Father and our God, we come to you and ask that... Your special blessing will rest upon the proclamation of the book of Romans. We pray that you will bless your word. All of your word is inspired and inerrant in the whole and in the part, completely authoritative in our lives. It is your truth that is to be spoken to the church and into this world. It is the word of God. But, Father, special blessing has so often attended the exposition of the Book of Romans in churches and denominations and even in entire countries, time periods, that we would ask that you would be pleased to send reformation, renewal, indeed revival, that would spread from this place to other churches throughout our country and throughout the world and be used of you in the recovery of even our culture, sunk so deeply into sin and Degradation and disobedience to your word. Give to us, each of us, Father, the desire, the zeal to persevere as the book is expounded so that indeed if we are in it for a long, long while, we will be delighted to have spent so long a time together as a congregation in this great book. And hear our prayer for also not only the building up of your people but the conversion of lost sinners. You might be brought by others on these Sunday evenings and will hear the gospel of Christ or will gather and see your people worshiping you in spirit and in truth and that you will bring them to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the time to read the first 17 verses of the book of Romans and after that we will begin to introduce this great epistle. This is the word of God, Romans chapter 1, 1 through 17. to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God, through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world, That I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. This epistle to the Romans was written by Paul the Apostle, and no other person, I am bold to say, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, has so singly influenced the history of the world, and certainly not of the church then has the Apostle Paul. What a remarkable man he was. No other book has so influenced, I would not only say the church, but the world. No other book has so influenced the world as has the book of Romans. Written around 55 A.D. by Paul the Apostle from Corinth, it is still the most profound piece of theology, discipleship, and missiology all in one, that you will find in the pages of the New Testament. So we need to ask some questions so that we can can have our bearings as we approach the text and begin to understand this book. The first question that we need to ask is, why did Paul, Paul write this book? And many answers have been given, and I think there are elements of truth in the various answers that have been given. Let's focus on just a few of these. First of all, the Apostle Paul, it is said, wrote this book as a summary of his theology. Now, there's a great deal of truth in that. Uh, It is a deeply theological book. Don't be afraid of the word theology. Theology really is only the application of Scripture to life. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this great book, uh, the book of Romans. But it's not altogether the case that it is a summary of his theology. Uh, If you go to the book of Colossians, for example, you read in that book more about the person of Christ than you do in the book of Romans. Nonetheless, having said that, it really is an extensive treatment, especially of the theme of salvation by grace, both as it applies to our justification before God and our sanctification in our Christian lives. And one particular theme is more dominant than any other. And that is the theme of righteousness that comes by faith. Now, let's spend just a moment to understand what this means. First of all, the word righteousness is used in various ways in the Bible. Sometimes righteousness is used of a moral righteousness, an ethical righteousness. But the way in which Paul the Apostle predominantly uses the term righteousness in the book of Romans is not in, in terms of my own personal moral righteousness. Righteousness. But he means by that a righteousness that corresponds to the demands of the law of God. A righteousness that, when it is upon God's people, causes us to be accepted in God's presence. It is a declarative righteousness. It is a legal righteousness And if you don't understand that about the book of Romans, then you'll miss the point of the book of Romans and actually misread page after page of this essential book. Let me put it to you this way. God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we are sinners. Chapter 5 tells us that we have fallen in Adam, we are corrupt in our nature, and the guilt of Adam's first transgression has been imputed to each of us. And so there we stand before this holy God in His court of law, completely unrighteous. How then can I be accepted by God? This is the great problem with which the Apostle Paul uh, struggles in this book to answer. Gives to us by divine inspiration the answer. The simple facts presents us with a profound problem. God is righteous and in His court of law, we are guilty. God is righteous and in His court of law, We are unrighteous. So that's the problem addressed primarily in the book of Romans. And so the great words justification, imputation become words that you see in this book. And without these words, we cannot understand how we are declared to be accepted by God. What's the answer? The Apostle Paul says to us in this book, but he unpacks it in wonderful ways. The answer to this dilemma of standing before a holy and a righteous God in our unrighteousness is that if we are to be accepted in His court of law as righteous, we need an alien righteousness to be imputed to our account. We need a righteousness that is not our own, a perfect righteousness that comes from the Son of God to be granted to us and received by faith. That, of course, is the great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. So that the Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear in this book that if your trust is in Christ alone, you have nothing whatsoever to do with God's condemnation, wrath, and righteous judgment. Now, that's good news. And that's the theme that the Apostle Paul will spend so much time with, helping us to grasp and to understand. It's a great thing, is it not? Is there someone here tonight and you know within your heart that you are guilty, you are a sinner, you are standing under the judgment of God, that if you look within your heart for an answer to this problem, how can I be right with God, you will find no answer, but you will only deepen your sense of condemnation. Well, the answer to that, according to Paul the Apostle, is that when you trust in Christ, who died for sinners on a cross, and who also kept the law that you broke, that perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account, and you are completely righteous in the sight of God, and received by Him as if you were the righteousness of Christ yourself. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the core of the gospel. Now, let me remind you that this core of the gospel always in the history of the church comes under attack. Uh, We could go through church history and find it, especially in the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformers are keen to defend this doctrine against the Roman Catholic view of the matter, which mingles grace and works. Or you can come to our own day, and you can find that there are those who even claim to be reformed, and of course it is not reformed, but they claim to be reformed, who are attempting to mingle grace and works, who deny the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so this great truth of justification that is absolutely fundamental and indispensable is constantly under attack. And we need to understand it. We need to live off this truth. We need to to appreciate what the Apostle Paul has to say in the book of Romans about this great theme of justification. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, he says in chapter 8, verse 1, and that summarizes the matter. So why did Paul write it? Well, it is a great summary of much of his theology, but especially of his theology of salvation by grace alone. But also, we don't want to miss the fact that he writes to those in Rome. He's never been there. He's not yet arrived. He, he knows some of those who are in Rome. We find that out throughout the book, especially in chapter 16. But he's never been there. But here's one thing you can know about Paul the Apostle that I hope is true of you too. He loves the church. He loves the church and he loves God's people. He loves the truth He loves the people of God purchased with Christ's own blood. And he can hardly wait to get to Rome to meet these believers. He's eager to see them. Did you notice, for example, in verses 10 through 12 of this chapter, chapter 1, always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And you find similar things in the 15th chapter of this book. The Apostle Paul wants to come because he wants fellowship, and he writes this epistle before he comes so that he can deepen that fellowship and impart to them some spiritual gift. Do you have a similar view of the church? Do you love the church that way? Do you love God's people that way? But there's another reason, and perhaps the primary reason, that he wrote this book. We've pointed out that this is a remarkable man, the Apostle Paul, and he has these grand schemes for getting the gospel out there in the world. He's truly motivated to share his faith, to preach the gospel, and to see others take the gospel into the world. And he wants to promote unity between Jew and Gentile in this congregation especially so that the gospel may be preached to the churches around them and that they might become his base of operation when he goes to Spain to preach the Word of God. Yes, Paul the Apostle has been used of the Lord to plant churches in various locations in the East. His work there is done, that is to say, in planting a church or in helping churches that are established to be more deeply established in the gospel. Those churches are going to continue to share their faith and to grow. But now he wants to come to Rome. And from Rome, he has this plan to go all the way to Spain. What a remarkable man the Apostle Paul was. To go to Spain to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was a man of books, you know. Uh, I say this because recently I heard uh, someone make the statement with the implication that if you're a man of books, then you can't be a church planter. Uh, if you're a man of books, if you're bookish was the, was the word, then you're probably not going to be a very good church planter, <laughs> I thought. I was thinking back through church history and those who've been used to plant churches and how studious they were, what scholars of the word they were. And then, of course, there's the Apostle Paul. Don't forget the books and the parchments, he said. You know, you can be a man of books and a man of action too. And that's what the Apostle Paul really was. He plans to take the gospel into Spain from the depth of his knowledge of theology. Not despite his theology, but because of his theology. His theology drives him, gives him passion to preach the gospel all the way over into Spain. So if you turn to chapter 15, for example, and we read just a few verses beginning in verse 22, you see something of that passion and his desire to preach the word of God in faraway places. Uh, chapter fifteen, twenty-two. Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while." At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul has this overarching evangelistic and missiological thrust. He wants to go to Spain, and he is addressing some of the disunity, especially theological disunity, among Jews and Gentiles in this book, so that out of their unity in the truth they may be used to help him spread the gospel in Spain. So, the Apostle Paul writes this as a summary of his theology, especially his doctrine of grace. He has a desire for personal fellowship with these people, and he desires to promote unity for the sake of mission among those who are in the church, which was at Rome. That's why he writes the book. Now keep that in mind as we continue to work week after week through the book, but right now let's ask another question. Pastor, can you give us an overview of this book? Yes, I can. And so let's do that together. When we look at chapter 1, the first 15 verses, there we have the salutation, and we also have the essential theme, and the essential theme is found in the very first verse, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the gospel of God summarizes for us the essential theme of the book of Romans. That's what the book of Romans is really all about, the gospel of God. In chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, all the way through chapter 4, the apostle unpacks this gospel in this great matter of justification and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. You know, when he says in verse 16 of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that is a a form of figurative speech that was called litotes. What that really means is that it is an understatement. The Apostle Paul means you to understand when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, to understand that he's really saying, I am ecstatic about the gospel. I'm overwhelmingly passionate about the gospel. The gospel of God controls my life. The gospel, the good news about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, all of these wonderful truths about Jesus that transform life, these are the things that grip my life. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am ecstatic about the gospel of Christ. Well, as we move on in this first chapter, verse 18 and following, he talks about the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of men. And he speaks especially of the Gentile world. The entire Gentile world is under the condemnation and wrath of God because of our rebellion against Him. Well, what of the Jews? If the Gentiles are under under condemnation, someone might say that's not true of the Jews, But as we move into the second chapter and into the third also, the Apostle says, yes, the Jews also. And so we find that the Gentiles are under condemnation. We find that the Jews are under condemnation. So who does that leave that is not under condemnation? No one. Everyone by nature is under the condemning wrath of God and is in need of a Savior. So when we come to chapter 3, verse 9 and following, the Apostle Paul says that both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. Then he has this litany of Old Testament passages, none is righteous, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all the way down to verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in in sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Everyone, everyone is condemned and is in need of a Savior. So you see the logic here, what the Apostle Paul is doing. The Gentiles are condemned, the Jews are condemned, and he leaves us there understanding that we need a Redeemer, and then we come to these great, these great words in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now. Now that's the hinge of the whole thing, you see. The Gentiles, the Jews are condemned, but things are different now. But now the righteousness of God. Hear that word righteousness again? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and there he goes on to preach Christ as the propitiatory sacrifice for sinners, as he puts it in verse 25 of chapter 3, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The one who bears the wrath of God against sinners so that we might be saved from our sins. So, this great matter of Christ as Redeemer, uh, substitutionary atonement, propitiatory sacrifice is the answer to the dilemma of man. The dilemma, the plight of man is that we are condemned. The answer to the plight is Jesus as substitutionary atonement. And then as he moves into chapter 4, he unpacks for us this great doctrine of justification by grace through faith by grounding this in Old Testament passages related primarily to Abraham but also to David so that we will understand that throughout history there has only been one way in which sinners have been saved, and that is through the righteousness of Christ. The Old Testament saint looking ahead to Christ who would come, we looking back to the Christ who has come, we are saved in precisely the same way by grace through faith in Christ. Now I think we should put together chapters 5 through 8. And chapter 5 stresses the cross, the ground of our assurance. In chapter 5, this morning, we read verses um, 8 and 9. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. God, commending His own love to us in the cross, This is the ground of our assurance of faith. And then in chapter 5, Paul stresses the work of Christ as the last Adam and our union with Jesus Christ. And he contrasts the fall of Adam and all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation that sinned in him and fell with Adam in his first transgression, with what Christ as last Adam has achieved and accomplished in order to rescue us from the Adam fall. So needed today when there are those who claim to be evangelical, who are denying the historicity of Adam, and saying to us that it really doesn't matter if we believe that Adam was an historical person. Yes, it does. The Apostle Paul says all of redemptive history is related to this great theme, There is Adam in whom we fell, there is Christ the last Adam in whom we are redeemed. As Luther said somewhere, all humanity hangs at the girdle either of Adam or of Christ. In chapter 6, the Apostle Paul moves on and applies this gospel to our Christian living. And he begins by by answering a question. In chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says, "Meganoita." By no means, let it never be. The old King James says, God forbid. And so he is answering this question, If salvation is altogether by grace, apart from any works of our own, if that is true, then, hey, we can continue to sin, and the more we sin, that simply will show how gracious God is. That's a viewpoint called antinomianism, anti-law, if you will. And it's a viewpoint that has taken grip of the church in various parts of her history. The Apostle Paul knows that this is a theme of separation between believers, and he needs to address it here in this great chapter, chapter 6 of the book of Romans. It used to be that in fundamentalist churches, you would hear a kind of antinomianism. They would say that the law of God has nothing whatsoever to do with the Christian life. That's not true. But now you're hearing that also in Reformed settings. And so we need to address this question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, we are in union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. How then can we continue in sin? But Christians do sin, yes, but reckon yourselves dead to sin, alive unto God. Then he moves in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, dealing with this issue of the law of God as it relates to this matter of our salvation. And he teaches us that the law has never saved, it has no power to justify, and that the law of God also has no power to be the efficient cause of our sanctification. When we turn the page from 7 to chapter 8, we come to the pinnacle of what the Apostle Paul has thus far argued. This great 8th chapter of the book of Romans, the high point in which he begins in verse 1 of the 8th chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And here he works out the theme of our adoption into the family of God, the role of the Holy Spirit, and our ultimate security in Christ. What a theme is found here, concluding with those great words that answer the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he teaches us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he speaks of the assurance that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We then turn to chapters 9 through 11 that should be grouped together. And in chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans, we have another question that is answered. What about Israel? Does Israel continue to have a place in the economy of God, in the purpose of God And he answers that question and here there is a great deal about the sovereignty of the grace of God and about election and predestination and these are very high, high mysteries that the Apostle Paul teaches in chapters 9 through 11. And then I think it's appropriate in summary that we take chapters 12 to 16 and conclude this survey by saying that in these chapters he deals with the unity of the body of Christ, The Christian and government, how relevant that is to us even today, that we are to show respect to the government, how we are to relate to the government. An application of that today would be the importance that you register to vote and get into the voting booth, that we be good citizens, even though our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, that we understand our responsibility even today. Well, he addresses the, Christian, um, the Christian's living, his ethics, in view of the return of Jesus Christ in chapter 13, the weak and the strong. What do you do when Christians differ over things that we call adiaphora, things indifferent, but about which someone may have a very strong opinion? How do you deal with those differences of opinion? One saying, I can eat one food, another saying that food is forbidden. Well, that's what chapter 14 is all about. And chapter 15, of course, is that great missions chapter, and 16 as well. So you see, if Romans is not a complete theology of Paul the Apostle, it comes pretty close. If it's not a complete theology of the Apostle Paul, it's nonetheless a very comprehensive summary of the main themes in the theology of Paul the Apostle. And I hope that thrills you. I hope you want to know these things and to understand them. All right, I have one other question to raise and answer before we're done tonight. Why do I, as your pastor, want to turn us as a congregation to the book of Romans? Why? Is it just because your pastor loves the book of Romans, which he does? Now, let me give you several reasons. The first reason that I think we need to turn to the book of Romans is because Romans is in many ways the key to understanding the Bible. If you begin to understand the things that we've talked about tonight and see some of the the intricate logic of how the Apostle Paul applies the gospel, if you understand how he takes the Old Testament and weaves it into his argument, you begin to see the unity of the Bible. You begin to see something of God's grand sweeping purpose for his world and for his church. And so the key, really, to understanding the Bible is a good, deep understanding of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and that's why I'm encouraging you. You know, I've, I've, I've gone through the book of Romans in a somewhat quick sort of way in the past, and we spent some time in the first eight chapters a few years ago, but now it's time for us just to soak in it. And that's why I'm encouraging you to stick with it so that over the next couple of years or more, we actually understand better our Bibles because we understand the book of Romans together. So bring others, get your fellow church members here, and let's study this book together. That's first, it's a key. The second thing is that Romans grounds us comprehensively in essential doctrines for Christian living. Doctrine is a good word not a bad word. I find in many circles it's considered a bad word. It is a good word. You need doctrine in your life so that you're grounded and so that you know what is true and what is not so that you can discern between truth and error and so that you can serve the Lord out of the fullness of those truths. And so Roman grounds us comprehensively in justification and sanctification and adoption and many other truths. A third reason for turning to this book is that Roman's grounds us in assurance of faith. And if we're ever going to be the kinds of Christians that are confident in sharing our faith, uh, confident in our Christian living, uh, confident as dads and moms, uh, confident uh, with our peers, confident about who we are in Christ and about the gospel and about, about what life is all about, then we need to understand the book, of Romans. It is so necessary for vibrant Christian living that we be grounded in our assurance and the only ground of assurance is Christ and what he did for us, which is explained so beautifully by Paul the Apostle. Also, fourthly, Romans stresses the union that we have with Christ and also the union that we have one with another. And so as he stresses the union of the Jew and the Gentile. In turn, for Christian mission together to succeed, we need to understand the significance of that union. Again, the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Spain. He's concerned with unity in truth, in part for the sake of missions. But let me give you the big reason for me, as your pastor, to turn us to this book of Romans. The fifth reason, the preeminent reason in my own mind and in my own heart is that the preaching of the book of Romans throughout history has been at the forefront of Reformation, revival, and renewal regularly, constantly. It was at the forefront of the Protestant Reformation. It was prominent in the great revival in the 18th century in which God used George Whitfield and others. Had we time to look at Martin Luther and what he thought of this book, this man who through works of supererogation was deepening his guilt for God, who thought that his works could save him, who found no relief in his works, and when he turned to the book of Romans as a doctor in theology required to teach the Scriptures and began to understand, what righteousness by faith was all about. He said, it was as if the gates of paradise opened. It was as if he were born again. John Calvin, the very first book upon which he wrote was the book of Romans, his great commentary. He said, how should you write a commentary? How should you expound the scripture? Lucid brevity, he says. Now that's a commentary, not sermon. So We're going to spend longer in it than Calvin did in his commentary, but it was a great, great boon to the Protestant Reformation. 18th century, I've already mentioned, but let me set aside all of those examples and focus upon the example that I've always loved the most. In the 19th century, in Geneva, if you went to Geneva and you went to the churches, churches that once had been filled with Ministers that loved Christ and were passionate about the cross, and who were passionate to preach the gospel of Christ. Uh, Saint-Pierre, where Calvin himself had preached, and other churches in the city. If you went to those churches in the early 19th century, you would find that no one preached the gospel. As a matter of fact, you would find that the great Trinitarian theology of John Calvin and later of Turretin of Geneva, the great Reformed folk who taught in the great school there in Geneva, you would find that now there was a dull, cold, lifeless Sassanianism, which basically means Unitarianism, that had replaced the biblical preaching and teaching of the day. And the theological school that once had produced men that were passionate for Christ and passionate for His gospel was now now housing students who were being taught by professors who denied every cardinal truth that Paul the Apostle teaches in the book of Romans. They denied the inspiration and authority of the Bible. They denied the triune nature of God. They denied justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. They denied the substitutionary atonement. They denied all of these truths and many, many more. And then there was a Scot whose name was Robert Haldane, who was coming to Geneva for a visit, and he began to talk to some of these students. And he decided that he would invite them to his chambers, to his rooms, his rented rooms. And he brought these students together, and when they came, there were long tables. And on those long tables, he had Greek New Testaments, and he had Bibles in different languages. And he said, here's what we'll do. We'll study together the book of Romans." And one by one by one, these students, taught by these Unitarian teachers who denied the gospel, one by one by one over time, each of them came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and became passionate preachers of the old doctrines of sovereign free grace." Men some of whose names you would know. Merle d'Albinia, the great church historian of the Reformation. Uh, Frederick Manot. Uh, Louis Gausson, who wrote that great book on the inspiration and authority of the Bible, Theopneustia. Cesar uh, that uh, that preacher with long locks that looked prophet-like, who preached the assurance of faith with such power. These men had been lost and undone. But as the epistle to the Romans was expounded, one by one, they were saved from their sin. Renounced their involvement in, in the unbelieving school there in Geneva. And Haldane's exposition of the book of Romans was the result. One of the great expositions characterized by a deep reverence for Holy Scripture, reverence for the Scripture's author, and a high view of the sovereignty of God in His grace. He showed His students their ruined nature, and He showed His students their need of grace, and He pointed them to the finished work of Jesus Christ, just as we will do as we preach this book of Romans, and by the grace of God every time we stand in this pulpit. And this led to the great conflict in Geneva, and it led to great revival in Switzerland and in France, to the salvation of sinners, sound preaching, and new theological institutions teaching the old doctrines of the Apostle Paul. And that's my great burden, that we believe those things, those truths, ourselves, in our church, in our lives, on Monday when we leave this place, ourselves, and that God may be pleased. Wouldn't it be wonderful that God may be pleased to take these truths that we learn together from the book of Romans and take these truths and spread them throughout his church, that they may be believed in places where they have been renounced and even forgotten. So we're going to move slowly. And I want us to learn to think with the Apostle Paul and to get into his mind together. And I'm going to ask you to pray that the Lord will crown the preaching of this book and all the preaching here with blessing as He has so often done in the history of the church that He would use Romans in remarkable ways in this church, in our lives, and indeed in the world. And you will have an opportunity for that not only in your personal prayer lives this week, but next Sunday night as we have our fifth Sunday prayer meeting. And as Pastor McDonald leads us in that prayer meeting, I'm sure he would be very happy to make a place for you to pray for God's blessing on the exposition of the book of Romans. Amen.